listening to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. One of the main aims of this podcast is to introduce you to some of the exceptional people I've been lucky enough to meet during the course of my work as an insurance journalist. Some are not the CEOs and public-facing executives, but the strategic visionaries and innovators who work behind the scenes doing extraordinary things. Today's guest is just one such character. Oliver Schofield has had over 30 years in insurance, working at brokers Alexander Howden and Aon, and then RKH and RFIB. He's now an independent consultant working in the captive space. As you'll soon find out, Ollie is as bright an insurance brain as you'll find working anywhere in the sector. And because captives are vehicles that can insure almost anything, they allow all his creativity to shine through. Listen on and you'll find out how they're an excellent way of covering systemic risk, including pandemics, as well as all sorts of uninsurable enterprise risk that the traditional market would run a mile from because of the problem of moral hazard. One of the other aims of the Voice of Insurance is to give us all a chance to learn about parts of the market that we don't often get to interact with. I think captives fall into that category. We all know what they are, but there are a lot of things that we think we know about them that just don't stand up to close scrutiny. So we'll be doing a lot of myth-busting today. You'll notice a few edits on this recording. That's because we did some of it before the global lockdown kicked in. It soon became obvious that I should get back to Ollie to talk about COVID-19 and how captives might play a role in filling in the large gaps in pandemic cover that have since emerged. Do enjoy meeting Ollie. A link to his company, which is called Risks, is in the podcast notes. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium, where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience, because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Let's just set the scene for someone who's not a captive expert. What sort of premium, what sort of GWP are we talking about globally that is going through captives at the moment? Well, the last global survey showed that there was approximately 150 billion US dollars being passed into the captives by their parents across the world. That's obviously a very, very large number. It is a mature, sophisticated large part of the insurance sector. Yes, so it, it doesn't compare that unfavourably with something like reinsurance itself. No, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the uh, the number of these vehicles, 6,500 round numbers um, of captives around the world. But interesting, if you look at the assets under management, that's 250 billion US dollars under management. So, yeah, it compares very favourably with parts of the reinsurance sector. What do you think the potential for the growth of that is, particularly now we're talking about a hardening market, and we'll talk about those dynamics later, but what's the potential for the growth of that? There's always potential for growth in the captive market, partly because of what's going on in the traditional insurance market, whether that's pricing, whether that's capacity, whether it's coverage, whether it's limits, and partly because risks, as we know, risks as in the risks that companies face, not risks my company, uh, but risks as we know are becoming ever more complex. And the insurance market always has to play catch up with the complexities of new risks when it comes to being able to provide a policy that is broad enough and fit for purpose. We know that the WannaCry 
and the uh, Equifax hacks that happened over the last few years would not have been covered by cyber policies that were in place at the time. They may well be today, but they wouldn't have been by those cyber policies. So captives are always looking at ways that they can provide that cover to the parent company. So in the world of ever more complex and involving risks, captives will continue to provide that service and grow accordingly. So do you think that captives then theoretically should grow at a faster pace than the rest of the market? In terms of the volume of captives, absolutely yes. And that's certainly what we've seen over the last two years. The number of inquiries that have been coming in for people who wish to sell up captives has been unprecedented from my perspective in my 30-odd years in the industry. Let's go through that dynamic because I suppose we should probably do myth-busting a bit about most of my audience is going to be sitting in the traditional insurance and reinsurance market and probably knows of captives but knows little about them. Are they right to see that there's this kind of inverse correlation? If the market hardens, then client that owns a captive will put more in the captive and buy less open market insurance and reinsurance. And when the market hardens, they'll retain that risk and keep it to themselves. Is that fair to say? Or is that just actually a very blunt way of describing things and not it's missing a lot of nuances? It's partly fair to say that. If you consider that a captive is a bona fide insurance company, how does an insurer manage their cost of capital and their risk-based approach to life? They will go out and purchase reinsurance when it is economically attractive for them so to do. If there is pressure on the reinsurance pricing for that insurer, they will seek to retain more risk themselves or they might look at alternative capital providers. So the captive will work in the same way. The captive is an insurance company. They will look at their net retention and they will see whether or not there's any room for increasing that based in any given market cycle. They will then look to the reinsurance market to try and arbitrage what the front, the back end pricing might be compared to the front end because they'll be looking at second or third or fourth loss scales, not the traditional first loss scale. So they'll operate in the same way as an insurance company. However, and this is the really interesting part, as the captive is ultimately owned by the parent company, it's the, the organisation to whom it is providing the, the cover, the captive has the opportunity of being able to maintain the breadth of cover that maybe a traditional insurer would not be able to do because the captive is ultimately the net retention vehicle. Do you think that broadness of cover is more important to the insured, to the owner of the captive, than price? The breadth of cover is certainly very important to the captive owner. And we have seen organisations establishing captives simply so that they can ring fence that exposure, build up a financial capability to be able to pay for those losses even when they happen. Right. So it's far less sort of financial arbitrage from very large corporations playing with the, with the insurance market and sort of in and out. You'd say it's, it's far more about them actually doing risk management properly. And perhaps it's probably more the insurers have got to blame for in a hardening market being able to slap on exclusions and then the big corporate saying I can't I need that I need that exclusion to be underwritten and I can't write it back in the, in the market so I'm going to go and find a way of dealing with this risk uh, managing this risk myself absolutely so they're managing that risk financially so it is a combination but the key for them is to ensure that they have that cover now that cover might be cover that they provide to their customers which is why they absolutely need to have it in their captive, because if they can't provide that cover to their customers, they no longer have those customers. And we can talk about an example of that a little bit later on when we get on to the producer-owned reinsurance captives. Oh, yes, we'll save that for later. Captives are insurance companies. That's as simple as that. That's all we need to know. Insurance companies in general, and obviously captives, one presumes, are writing quite a lot of workers' compensation, quite a lot of casualty classes. 
They're insurance companies like any other. They take actuarial advice. They use their best estimates and everything else. Now, whenever there's a shock, I presume they get the same shock as everybody else because they're using the same professionals or they're human like everybody else. So that's a very long way of saying we've had a bit of casualty strengthening in the US, I'm sure, which is a core captive market. Do you think there's been any casualty strengthening in the in the captive arena that there have been some underestimation of, of some of the liabilities there? I don't think there's been an underestimation of liabilities in the captive, and I don't believe there's been an overestimation of the reserves that need to be held within the captive either. And there's a couple of very good reasons I believe that. First of all, it's the taxman. Setting up a captive always attracts the attention of the various tax authorities around the world. And captives have to play a very, very careful game when it comes to making sure that their reserves are significant, uh, sorry, sufficient, but not overly sufficient. The you can't be seen as using it as a kind of place to go and hide excess profits. You can't stuff reserves into a captive where there is no risk that is associated with those reserves. The independent actuaries within the captive domiciles will look at the captive accounts every year and will sign off as to whether or not those reserves are of the appropriate quantum. Now, tell me about some of the things that you can use a captive for you couldn't get in the traditional insurance market. So there are a huge number of covers that are not provided for by the insurance market. And that's not a right or a wrong position. It's just that cover is not available, partly because the insurance market may not have sufficient data to be able to offer the type of coverage that an organization might need, partly because the insurance market may have been badly burnt in coverages in the past and simply no longer offer that type of cover partly because in certain parts of the world, activities that captives undertake are legal there, but they're not legal to buy reinsurance for. I'll give you an example of that was the recently established cannabis captive in Vermont. Now, that is an, uh, sorry, that is a legal activity in Vermont. However, buying reinsurance for that is a bit more of a challenge because you can't necessarily buy reinsurance in international markets for an activity that that particular country deems to be illegal. So captives have a very important role to play in providing cover to their parent or their parent members for risks that are it is not possible to be able to transfer to the traditional insurance marketplace. What about other stuff? Things that are closer to enterprise risk. And I suppose the great thing about a captive is that you've removed the moral hazard because you're first party. You don't have to worry about, am I going to diddle myself? Because you're not. Correct. So we have one client that um, is desperately concerned about one risk and one risk only. And that is if they can't retain their staff. They are a trader. And as any other broking house or trader is concerned, if they don't have their traders, they don't have a business. So we structured a deal for them whereby they could actually put a portion of every single trade that they made into their captive as premium. And if at the end of any financial year they didn't have sufficient funds to be able to pay the necessary bonuses to their staff, then the captive would pay that as a bona fide claim to the parent company. Now, that's not something you can do in the traditional insurance market, clearly, because that is pure financial guarantee. It's pure financial management. However, because it's a captive, they could demonstrate to the authorities in that particular domicile and to the regulators both back home and in that particular domicile that this was a core risk to their business. And therefore, they could call it premium and they could call it claims in the event they had to draw down on it. It's a very successful way for them to be able to build up a fund of resources to be able to keep their business operating in the event of that type of loss. Yes, I think that would be impossible to structure in insurance, wouldn't it? That's totally. fair to say, isn't it? Yeah, that's just not 
a risk that I would ever imagine you'd see in the traditional insurance or reinsurance market. With this COVID-19 crisis, given all the difficulties in traditional insurance coverage, and we've started to see these things emerging, we've seen non-damage business interruption, where we've seen ambiguities in wordings and disputes starting to emerge, could a captive have helped? And what sort of options are available to captive owners to get some sort of measure of protection against pandemic risks? Absolutely. I think captives certainly will be playing a very important role for many organisations right now in the environment in which we find ourselves. The thing to remember about a captive is that the captive can provide cover for a broad range of exposures that may or may not be available in the traditional marketplace. Often they're not available because economically the the buyer doesn't wish to spend the money that is uh, is required to be able to buy that cover and we know that pandemic cover has been available in the marketplace over the last five six years however buyers have shied away from purchasing it as the costs have been in their opinion so incredibly high so a captive in this current environment if people have decided not to buy the pandemic cover available in the traditional marketplace they would have been able to use their capture to build up a fund to pay for uninsurable risks as and when the event happens. But you have to remember that a captive is there to be creative, but it is also there to provide stability to its parent company. Now that stability can come in a variety of different guises. First of all, it can, the captive can provide a difference in conditions cover over and above what might have been already included within their property or their liability or business interruption or other policies that they purchase that could be impacted. The captive then can provide a pure cat cover over and above what is available in the traditional marketplace. The point of view of the creativity of the captive is that longer-term risk management planning, longer-term risk management thought processes should be brought into any captive operation and therefore the captive should always be having an eye towards catastrophic systemic risk that could impact its owner, such as what we're going through at the moment. And they could have built some form of fighting fund to provide them with that smoothing protection when the event happens. And this point about systemic risk, you're saying an advantage of captives there is because it's not part of the system, because it's an isolated fund that is only insuring one party and the first party then that is a protection against systemic risk because you don't have to worry about the risks of everybody else. You're really just looking at your own. Absolutely right. Now, it would be interesting to see if after the current situation has calmed down, whether or not captives think about collaborating with other captives on a mutualised basis to be able to actually purchase some form of catastrophe cover for them in the event of other systemic risks that will come down the line in the, in, in the future because of course that gives them a much bigger pot of money to be able to draw down upon and also then becomes more attractive to a reinsurance market if the cover is available but yes the captive is absolutely an ideal place to build up funds to provide protection for systemic risk. At what sort of return period does it become something that's viable i mean if it's something that you think is a one in five or something it's probably i presume that's it's not just really not worthwhile doing at what point do you have to does it have to be a one in 20 one in a 50 or something like that one in 100 well i think i think before giving a number one has to think about what cover is actually going to be required so yes we want cover from a systemic event but what do you want that cover to actually provide funding for do you want it to provide funding for pr and reputation issues you want to provide funding for bonus protection for your staff, for paying your staff regularly so they actually have 
the ability to uh, carry on with their day-to-day lives? Do you want it to cover increased costs of working, which a lot of firms would have obviously been suffering at the moment? So once you've worked out what it is you need that cover for, you can then start uh, working out what quantum, what monetary quantum of cover might be required. And it may not be as big as perhaps people think. So if you take a large logistics firm, that is suddenly having to increase the amount of work it's doing and therefore it's having to hire more vehicles, more fleets to get goods um, distributed. They might only actually require a limit of five to 10 million for that. But then that's going to be offset against the increased income that they've got from providing those increased services. So we're not talking about billions of pounds worth of risk here. We're talking about what actually becomes a much more manageable number and then your return period becomes a more interesting calculation because it does it really matter if this happens every five or ten years if you've been able to quantify and identify that risk precisely. I'm thinking about the situation where those who are prudent sometimes seem to get penalised. What about a situation where you've got a, a really prudent captive owner that set aside a fund for an event such as this, but then and they, they wonder why they're bothered because they see all their neighbours who haven't been so prudent and maybe you don't have a captive get bailed up by a government fund. Does it work that way? Can the captive um, still function? Uh, or do you, do you get penalised for this kind of thing if you, if, if, if you see everybody else get bailed out? Yeah, that, that's a very, very interesting point. And um, it's certainly something that has been raised in conversations I've had with risk managers. I think the answer to that really lies in understanding the creation of the program that the captive has put together. The captive is building a fund to provide for catastrophic scenarios. And as a pure cat layer, it should attach only over and above in excess of any other accessible protection, be that their own insurance policies from their their carrier, if they've happened to purchase cover that extends to, in this case, pandemics, and over and above any other reliefs that might be available from government, uh, be that, say, in the UK, we've got uh, all sorts of um, uh, incentives that have been put together by the government, such as the not having to pay VAT for a year, uh, tax deferrals, and so on. All of those should sit underneath the cat layer, and the cat layer only pays once the organization has exhausted all of the other opportunities. It also then gives the flexibility to the corporate to decide whether or not they find the items on offer from government to be actually attractive, because remember, some of the incentives are loans rather than grants and if they're loans they then have to go on a balance sheet as a liability and that creates all sorts of other accounting issues so it gives them the maximum flexibility to use their own insurance as and when they feel it's appropriate so to do so to summarize really it's the way you structure it and in fact if you do it right it shouldn't be penalizing you at all in fact it just gives you even more flexibility correct there's something you mentioned earlier which is a producer-owned reinsurance captive, or I think they're known as porks in um, captive parlance. What's a pork and how does that work? So a pork is essentially an insurance company, an insurance captive, that is established by a broker. And they establish them for a variety of reasons. One, to be able to aggregate all of their program exposure. So if they're running, say, maybe two different or three different programs for all of their property insureds, they might have 
5,000 individual property insureds, it's not necessarily efficient to be able to transfer that to the market on an individual basis. So potentially they used to put that into an MGA structure. Uh, but now what we're seeing is brokers setting up their own captives to be able to put that risk into the captive and then use the purchasing power of the captive on a much broader portfolio basis to be able to buy the reinsurance and the excess insurances. The benefits to that are that the broker has the control over the whole program. The broker has the ability to manage the program from a client perspective much more effectively. They also have the ability to negotiate, obviously, with the reinsurance market, because they are the broker, to get the appropriate stop loss in place. So we've seen a few of those established over the last couple of years. But I think the one that we're working on at the moment is potentially even more interesting. This is a broker that has a particular product and that product is currently placed 100% into the traditional insurance market. With the changes we're seeing in the market, that product is under threat because the market is beginning to cut back on the breadth of cover that is available to the broker's client base. Their USP as a broker is the absolute breadth of cover because that is entirely different from the cover that you can get for this type of product elsewhere. If they lose that breadth of cover, then essentially they lose their product, they lose their business. So they're going to sell up a pork so that the pork itself can offer the breadth of cover that they require, looking at the premium base that they receive each year, looking at the expected losses. This runs at a very good loss ratio, 45-50%. They will be able to take a significant retention into the captive, which will be funded by the premium flow, and then they'll be able to buy second loss or stop loss reinsurance at a much further out attachment point, maybe one in eight, one in ten scenario. And by going through the pork into the alternative captive reinsurance market, they'll be able to get the support they need because it is so far away from the day-to-day the -day attachment point. What about the client side of that? Though? How do they convince their clients that, that, is, that the security that they're offering in the pork is, is, is as good as it could be? Well, first of all, the pork will be fronted. It'll have to be fronted by a major international fronting organisation. And secondly... The, so the paper, therefore, that the client gets so it's is big multinational the, paper. Absolutely so. Right, okay. Um, and then you have the reinsurance as well. And so do you think, just uh, putting two and two together here, we've been talking about Lloyd's, and Lloyd's obviously is a massive broker market. Do you think that then potentially some of these new captives, if they are to be founded at Lloyd's, do you think they might be uh, porks? I think that would be a very exciting development. I don't know whether or not they would want to include that as their first round of discussions. But certainly... I think it makes a lot of sense, it, particularly where that pork is accessing the Lloyd's marketplace for all of its reinsurances. It just makes life so much more straightforward from a from a transaction point of view to have, a th have everything in one shop. What would Aon and Willis coming together, what will that do to the captive world, uh, you know, you as, as a captive specialist? Certainly both Aon and Willis have substantially large captive management and captive consultancy operations. They're very well known and very well established around the world. If I were a captive owner, I would feel nervous about the reduced choice when it comes to my captive management opportunities. Clearly, the Marsh JLT merger would have equally made me feel nervous. There are now two less captive managers in the world. And that, as a buyer, I think is something to be concerned about. Other big stuff that's happening, I mean, the huge amounts going on at Lloyd's, as we know, we've got the future at Lloyd's program, we've got the blueprint, but also in the captive world, we've got a working group set up to look at an old idea, probably from about 20 years ago, all the regulatory work has been done to allow um, captives to be domiciled within the Lloyd's uh, marketplace. That has now been um, revived. 
why don't you run me through what the advantage is and what the great what the attraction for captives which are well served all over the world with lots of different domiciles and lots of different places that will serve as captives what is the attraction and what's the logic behind looking at doing that at Lloyd's well I do remember very well the work that was done back in the early 1990s when Lloyd's first announced that they were going to become a captive domicile and certainly in the captive area we all felt terribly excited about the opportunities that would come from Lloyd's being a bona fide global captive domicile I suppose it is a bit of a shame that over the following 20 years people didn't really jump on that opportunity and I think one of the big barriers at the time was the cost base um, and also and um, this may not be a very popular opinion also the resistance from certain Lloyd's underwriters at the time to the whole concept of captives I certainly saw that when I was breaking North American casualty liability the number of underwriters who wouldn't entertain the idea of reinsuring a captive was quite staggering so here we are 20 years on and the proposals are back out there again as we know from various articles that have appeared in the uh, in the mainstream insurance press over the last few months personally I think the idea of having a captive at Lloyd's is a very compelling one and a very interesting one I think there are four key things that a captive could be looking at uh, when establishing a captive at Lloyd's and I think these are four key areas that Lloyd's should be um, should be pushing. So what's the main structure? What's the main the main attraction? Is it uh, licensing? Or what is it? So there are four things. I think the first one is licensing. So straight away, an organisation that sets up a captive of Lloyd's has access to the Lloyd's global licensing network. That is a very powerful opportunity for those organisations because they will no longer need to pay excessive fees for fronting their risk into those various domiciles. I think the second thing is that it gives automatically access to the Lloyd's rating structure. Many captives nowadays are looking to see whether or not they can get an AM best uh, or S&P rating because that helps them with some of their financial charges that they have, be it letters of credit, other forms of collateralization, or particularly, say, for example, in the trade credit marketplace, being able to prove that their insurance company, their, their captive insurance company, has sufficient rating to make the, uh, the banks comfortable. I think the third thing is the access to the market. Given that the market is right there on their doorstep, they will have much easier, seamless access to those markets that wish to support the captive program, either in an excess, excess play or in a reinsurance play. And finally, the branding. It's an incredibly powerful brand. And to be able to say, we have a captive at Lloyd's adds a huge amount of additional kudos to the organisations that are going to have captives. How much of a big savings that we would those fronting costs, which are typically, what, 7.5%? You're removing those fronting costs, aren't you, by putting captive into Lloyd's. Is, is that right? And what percentage of the expense base is... OK, I know it depends. It will depend from captive to captive. But what sort of percentage of the expense base... Would you be, are we talking about potentially saving for a captive owner? Well, I think with captive fronting, um, you know, 7.5% is, is probably the average number. Um, we certainly have seen numbers as, as high as 10 or 12.5%, depending on the nature of the business, depending on how much work is going to be involved by the fronting carrier. If it's a pure pass-through, which a lot of the captive deals are, then 7.5% to 10% is, in, in our opinion, is actually quite a high figure to charge. And we should be looking at a much lower number of around about 5%. But we appreciate people have cost of capital deployed. Putting that to one side for a moment, accessing the Lloyd's global licenses, there will be a charge associated with that, but that will be included within the overall charge of managing a captive at Lloyd's. So there are potentially savings to be made on the fronting costs. 
the important thing for a captive is that obviously it doesn't cost them any more to be able to access the Lloyd's capabilities of having their captive. And certainly the worst case scenario for a captive should be that it's cost neutral. Having said that, we would expect that any new domicile and any new organisations getting involved in fronting of the captives in that new domicile would absolutely be looking to make sure that they are economically attractive. From the point of view of percentages, it obviously depends on how much premium is going in through the front door. But certainly we believe that if it is structured in the appropriate way, there should be a significant saving on the overall global fronting charges. Is there anything about are there any drawbacks to going into Lloyd's? Obviously, in Lloyd's generally, once you're in, you're, you're in, and you're in for three year counting cycle and all sorts of things. Anything that might that is less flexible? From the point of view of the three year accounting cycle you mentioned, I don't think that will actually cause any issues for a captive because we always maintain that a captive is not just set up for one year. A captive is part of a much longer term risk management play. If an organisation is going to have a captive, they're going to be looking at at least a five-year lifespan to start with. If you get a situation where a captive is closed down after a year, it's normally because either the parent company has gone bankrupt or the parent company has been purchased by another organisation that already has a captive and doesn't wish to have two or more captives. So the long-term play, I think, is lends itself very well to establishing a captive in the Lloyd structure. Is it fair? 20 years ago, you mentioned that kind of resistance from uh, underwriters. Is that fair? Or do you think things have changed now? Things definitely have changed. The resistance that we saw back in the 1990s when I was breaking into Lloyd's and facing resistance was very much because underwriters felt that the captive was taking premium away from the market. Our counter-argument was the captive is bringing premium to the market for its excess or reinsurance and is purchasing pure cat's cover and taking away the attritional losses, those areas that do not make money for insurers. However, of course, in the 1990s, we had interest rates that were significantly higher than they are today, double-digit interest rates. And I can understand the underwriters who felt that they could sit on premium. And yeah, remember, combined ratios in those days at 101, 102% were totally acceptable because they were made, all of the, the profits were made up with through the investment income. So if you're taking away several million dollars worth of premium and putting it into your captive rather than into the, the then Lloyd's market, I can understand why underwriters were against the idea of captives but that was not from a risk perspective it was about a money perspective so here we are 20 years on investment rates are nowhere near where they were and they're certainly showing no indication that they'll go anywhere there's no nothing's going to happen with investment returns for for some period to come so underwriters of our generation now our breed of underwriters are looking purely at the risk basis and they see a captive coming into the market presenting actually a very good underwrite it's well priced it's well risk managed the losses are low, and they're looking for pure cat cover. A great proposition for any underwriter. Is it fair to say that actually captives are better managed than um, than traditional insurance businesses? I wouldn't necessarily say clearly that could be uh, that's the case. It could be argued, but there are many organisations that don't have captives that are incredibly well risk managed, and they don't have captives for a variety of reasons. So. In the old days, certainly, if a captive was established, you could. we used to present it as a much better risk-managed account. Nowadays, we look at organisations, and if they have a captive, then we know that they will be following certain very high-level requirements for risk management, but it doesn't mean they're necessarily out there on a class of their own. And so, but if someone said, oh, why should we let a captive in? Uh, surely it's a risk to the central fund. 
what, what would your response be? Anything that goes into Lloyd's is a risk to central fund. However, my argument to that is that no, it is not, because captives tend to be much better capitalised than any other insurance company because the risk stops with the captive. Therefore, $1 of risk has to be collateralised as $1 of premium or reinsurance or letters of credit or other forms of collateralization to make sure that there is no risk gap between the amount of risk that the captive is taking and the financial capabilities that it has to be able to meet its obligations. The challenge comes if one of the captive reinsurers fails or denies the claim, then there might be a claim on central fund. But that's not because of the captive, that's because of the captive's service suppliers. Before we move on from this topic, you're out there in the marketplace being asked to set up captives for people or to advise on setting up captives for clients out there. How much demand do you estimate that there is for a Lloyd's solution? I think there will be sufficient demand to meet the amount of time, energy and commitment that's going to be put in by the Lloyds community. Certainly, I know that other broking houses have had inquiries from their clients as to when they can set up a captive. I was talking to some people from Marsh and Aon and they both voiced to me that they were receiving inquiries from their client base as to what the status is and whether or not this is something they could look at for 2021. From our own perspective at risks, we have had a number of inquiries already from independent brokers and directly from a couple of, of our prospects saying, what's going on? Is this something we can get on board with? So yes, there is demand. Geographically, it's coming from North America. It's coming from Europe. We know that Airmic have been consulted as well, um, and their special interest group has shown a certain amount of interest. And Airmic is the UK-based uh, risk manager's trade body, isn't it? That's right. So it's the equivalent of RIMS. It's for, the, it's for the UK for equivalent of RIMS, that's correct. But thank you so much, Lolly. It was really, really, really good to talk to you. You're very welcome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed meeting Holly, and I hope any intermediaries in the audience might have been inspired to spend some more time investigating what captives can do for them and their clients, particularly now we have a hard market and many new and difficult client coverage needs to address. Speak to you soon. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.